Welcome to the Senior Story Hour, where we share poems, stories, observations of life, written by the Franklin Senior Center Writers Group. Before we jump in, we'll take a moment just to say who our writers today are. Steve Sherlock here. Hi, Faith Flaherty. Hi, Alice Judge. I'm Peter J. Linda Doonan. Al Larkin. Kathy Salzberg. Bill Oily. Yo, Steve, we're back. We're live once again, and we are recording another session. How are you today? I am doing well, Peter J. How are you today? I'm 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 going today, I'm I'm going to be ducky. Ducky. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, opt, I'm opting for duckiness. Duckiness. Yeah, you know, it's a good thing. And with us, we have a goodly group here at the Senior Center. Yeah, there are nine it. of us in session, and that's a wonderful thing. And I hope to be able to keep up with everyone here. It'll be hard, but I think you can try. I know, I know. <laughs> anyway, that said, Steve, as our official master of ceremonies, whom... Do you think we should start with? Well, I think there's a pair. There's a challenge and a response that I think would be appropriate to start with. Ooh, excellent. So the challenge comes from? Wow, Faith. <laughs> this is called A Walk with Bill. A quick jump Bill does make, seeing a striking pose by a snake, pain and fright upon his face. Away from that place, he did race. Fumbling for phone, take a picture, but the serpent's gone in a flicker. It all happened so quickly. Things do when Billy's with me. I wasn't scared, I wasn't scared, yet he squirmed. I was just surprised, Bill affirmed. He was a black, huge, thick circle. Bill's hands mimicked a huge pickle. <laughs> this happened as I saw it. Bill's version may differ a bit. I challenge him to respond in rhyme. A new limerick would suit me just fine. So the gauntlet is thrown. Yes. All right. All right. Yes. And now uh, here is my response. Okay. A walk with faith in my heart. To Weaver Pond we will stroll. I have not been there since a long time ago. Chilston Beach, a beautiful place. In my mind, I travel through time and space to a time long ago when I was just a lad, to this same place with brother and sister, what a time we had. Today I walk with faith and photos I take. Lots of trees by the pond grow wild. In the past, very few when I was a child. We walk to a clearing, a boat ramp looks fine. I walk to the edge, should I step one more time? When I get closer to the water, one more step I may go. A big black thick snake pops out of his hole. With a startled surprise, right back I did jump. I did it so fast I heard a loud thump. In the blink of an eye, the snake popped back in its hole. And that is when, real fast I did stroll. Face dead with concern, I would have jumped just the same. With a twinkle in her eye, good friends we remain. Yeah. Nice. Well done. Well done. Very well done. The challenge and the response. Are we to look for other poems between the both of you? <laughs> who knows? In future yeah, times. Yeah, who knows? who knows? We'll wait for you to challenge somebody. Oh. I think this is going to end up being a high stakes game. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh oh. The challenge can be thrown by anyone, yes. <laughs> and then answered by someone as well. Yeah, that's so. right, yeah. 
that makes that makes the extra fun. So who wants to go next? I'll go. This is another chapter from my book, Confessions of a Mad Dog Groomer. And this is chapter six called Spiked. It was a busman's holiday for me. I went to the veterinary hospital on my day off to groom the ungroomable, a temperamental Lhasa Apso named Leon, who had successfully avoided his owner's attempts at brushing for almost a year. Several groomers, myself included, had met their match with this canine problem child. As a last resort, he would be sedated, and I would, I would shear him like a sheep while he dozed peacefully, unaware of my ministrations. At least that was the plan. Debbie, the vet tech, was new at her job, and the sedative she administered was too light. Halfway through the haircut, Leon jumped to his feet, and my hand was his nearest target. Pride overcoming my pain, I slapped a Band-Aid on my boo-boo, and once another shot from Debbie had sent Leon back to La La Land, I completed the grooming. But my wound was still messy, so once the job was done, she led me to a back ward where she applied some antibiotic ointment and wrapped my hand in gauze. Immediately, I became aware of a most unnerving sound, heartbreaking in its intensity. From a nearby cage, two long white legs stretched out towards me in supplication. They belonged to a kitten whose pathetic face grimaced painfully with each cry. He was the last of a litter left in a box on the hospital doorstep six weeks before, Debbie told me. Staff members were trying to find a home for the young cat, but he was rapidly losing the cute and cuddly look of a kitten. He had grown into a lanky adolescent. His wedge-shaped head sported large bat-like ears, and he appeared to be wearing a blue-gray hood, bisecting his golden eyes and falling over his body like Batman's cape. Under his long, distinguished pink nose was half a mustache, rakishly curled in a villainous handlebar. He's the last of the litter, Debbie repeated. Oh, for heaven's sake, give him to me, I said. I swear the words jumped right out of my mouth. This was the last thing I needed. I already had four cats. Once the cage was opened, he leapt upon me, raking his claws through my shirt. Clinging like a monkey, he purred raucously in my ear and soaked my shoulder with his drool. On the way home, I berated myself for not borrowing a carrier. Refusing to stay on my lap or the seat, he wrapped his snake-like body around my neck, pressing his face to mine and monitoring my every move. When I entered my house, wearing a cat around my neck, eyeglasses askew, shirt torn, and hand bandaged, my husband David was watching TV. You'll never believe what happened, I said. With a sigh of profound resignation, he replied evenly, yes, I would. <laughs> You've contradicted yourself again, Mama, my daughter remarked. You always swore you wouldn't be caught dead wearing fur. <laughs> Instantly, the master of his domain, the new arrival lightly landed, strutting by the four cats in residence as they hissed in unison. It was a case of hate at first sight. Undeterred, he made his way to the food dish 
and fairly hummed with satisfaction as he chowed down. I can't say my husband warmed to the foundling, continually referring to him as the weasel. To keep peace in the family, I presented him to my eldest son, congratulating myself on this timely solution. He would take up residence as a city cat in a Boston high-rise. My bachelor boy had always been a cat person. Within two days, I received a frantic phone call. He's ripping my new furniture to shreds, and every time I open the refrigerator, he jumps in. I had never heard David Jr. sound so stressed. Last night, he got out on the balcony, he continued. There he was, tottering along the railing, 21 stories above the city, like a flying Wallenda. I'm sorry, Mom, but you're getting him back. During his brief stay in the city, my son had given the cat a name. He's tough as nails, so I called him Spike. For the next 18 years, Spike roamed the house and woods nearby, outliving a host of equally beloved feline housemates and dominating an ever-changing cast of new arrivals with his loud voice and little paws of stone. And my husband's back had been worse than his bite. He still called the cat a weasel, but they became fast friends. Always manipulative, in his younger days, Spike liked to post himself on the roof of our ranch house, demanding to be rescued. Who was he kidding? (laughs) He knew the way down, the same skinny tree he shinnied up to get there. But I was his foil, dutifully performing the ritual. I would fetch the willow basket from the living room, dumping its silk flowers on the sofa, and position myself by the porch railing as I held it aloft. He would take a running jump off the roof into the basket, emitting a karate scream as he landed with a thud. Sweating profusely, I would carry him into the house to comfort him after this drama. The ending was always the same. As a senior cat, he needed assistance to climb up next to me on the couch. Ungrateful as ever, he squawked like an old curmudgeon when I gave him ten fingers. He was probably embarrassed outdoors as well. Birds and squirrels strolled nonchalantly by the once mighty hunter as he dozed in the grass. Indoors, age still had its privilege. He still got first dibs at the food dish. About a year after I acquired him, I remember the phone ringing on my day off. It was Debbie from the animal hospital. She knew it was short notice, but could I please come down and shave Leon again? He had gotten himself into a mess of sticky burrs, and it was an emergency. You're not going to groom that little tyrant again, my husband had declared. Last time you were bandaged for a week, Spike had been stretched out on my lap when I took that call. His elongated body looking as as if it had been put through a ringer. Slowly he rose, arching his back like a Halloween cat, in giving my face a sandpaper lick. Oh, sure, I'll go, I told David, as he tickled the chin of my purring slinky toy. Leon may be the worst dog I ever groomed, but I do owe him one. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Thanks. How long did you do that for? How long did you do the grooming? Oh, 
27 years. Well, <laughs> your daughter does it now, right? Well, she oversees it. She yeah. doesn't actually groom, but she runs the place. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You must have a... I did have a lot, lot of, of stories. Oh, the a lot of stories, I know. Sure. I keep telling her to And I uh, keep telling my daughter, because she's got a whole box of them. In fact, everybody in the main audio would take one, and you could actually I maybe know. pay the rent. <laughs> <laughs> so, you have books. Yeah. Yes. Indeed. All right, moving on. Al, you have something today? Yeah, I could do something. Sure. Well, it's... For me, it's all about PEI. I finally got back this uh, this year, and around the 15th of August, finally they opened the border. But anyway, we've been going to the schoolhouse for 50 years. Everybody might have heard the story before. We acquired it with a bid uh, back in 1971, occupied in 72. It was like camping for about 15 years, with, uh, but we had a roof over our head. Uh, anyway, and acquired furniture and made a made a, a, a home out of a, out of an old schoolhouse uh, so it's a it's a great summer cottage and the family goes there when they even the young people the grandchildren love to come there so this is just a, a little story about uh, the PEI schoolhouse over the years and there's just a, a few things that happened and in this year was no exception we had some interesting experiences the PEI schoolhouse over the years. The place to be in 73 was a centennial celebration of Prince Edward Island joining the Confederation of Canada. Events that summer across the island were full of music, dance, costume, reflecting every aspect of the people in a mix of Scottish, Irish, and French traditions. Colorful traveling shows and parades provided fine entertainment for all. Over the next decade, we continued our three-week vacations, mixing in with our neighbors and their lifestyle, including getting in the hay from the field to the barn with a ride on top of the wagon loaded with hay bales. A swim would follow that at the end of, the, of our road, off the wharf or on the beach, in the warm water that fed the rivers running out of the cove. In those years, to our delight, most of our family members included my folks, who managed to make it to the island, staying in a farm, in a farm vacation homes nearby. We captured on slides our get-togethers at the schoolhouse, music events, and both indoor and out, deep-sea fishing, only an hour away was at the top of the island, where they have four expeditions out to the sea three times a day. Only 20 minutes out of the deep, and you can drop a line to catch a cod, mackerel or hake. Everybody gave it a try, and were happy to hold up their great catch for a photo op. In 1986, we discovered a serious foundation failure under our building, and had a man come over for a price to fix it. With a limited co-view, we considered moving the building over 100 feet to the middle of this two-acre property. He said, oh, that might cost you another 2,000. Wow, I thought, is that all for this huge building? From there, I talked to my cousin Betty's husband, Reggie, who installs septic systems. As it would be needed, 
at the new location. He gave a price and recommended people who were well-equipped to get the move right. Deciding on them, I drew up plans and dimensions, providing copies to everyone involved on what was needed and what was to be done. The move was to be complete before our return on a given date the following summer, when only Peg and I would be going to the island. On our Saturday arrival, much to our dismay, a crew had our building jacked up and ready to move with the electric power line cut off. Telephone calls were made and with meager apologize given, they said the move would be done early Monday morning to the new foundation. This meant we would have to wait it out over the weekend with candles and flashlights throughout the evenings we had to have, have to grin and bear it. Moving this huge structure proved to be something to watch. Using the blade of a bulldozer to push, the workers kept relaying these tree-sized rollers in front as the building crept along 100 feet onto the new foundation. Phew, with that, we had to line up others for all the utilities that were needed. A new power line to the building was a must, and my lineman background helped with the maritime electric overhead people expediting that installation. A curious thing was found in the way of our electric building address. We were listed the ball field, a diamond of a gem, reminiscent of the school's children baseball days. With power to the building, we contacted our friend Ed Gill and son, Electric Company. They came right away for us and were the first class power upgrade throughout. Then we located Harold, a semi-retired plumber. He installed a new water tank along with all the lines through sinks, drains, etc. A connection was needed to the septic system and squeezing out from under our crawl space, he said, that was a little bit like being born. <laughs> <laughs> a new water line needed to be installed by the way of a trench, dug with a backhoe from the pump to the end of the house by Reggie's son, Danny, a distant cousin of mine. A lot went on with workers and trucks all over the yard and to the amazement of my next door neighbor, taking it all in with disbelief, she has something to say. So much was getting done by the normally laid back islanders. By Thursday of that week, they were all finished in more ways than one. We cut our vacation short that year. It was good to have it done. Living in our more functional home with the end of camping in sight, our young carpenter, Michael, and I flew down that September with a bag full of tools and plans for a deck and patio door to access and enjoy the cove view. We leased a car from rent Rec to get around in for ordering materials. It was decided that the deck would be 12 by 32, 12 foot by 32 feet, with stairs running off each end. We then rented an auger along with forms for post footings. The cement pour followed. The competent carpenter proceeded to frame it up 
and within days we had a patio door leading to our new deck. Taking in that south to west panorama from our new vantage point, fields going down to the sea, rising up to the cove and bay waters. Spectacular sunsets across the water would follow most evenings. A number of years later, a book launching took place at the schoolhouse. It was called The History of Orwell Cove. It had a sketch on the schoolhouse cover. It has a sketch of the school on the cover. One page in the book had a street layout of Orwell Cove as a proposed capital of PEI. The event was held on school property with speeches to a crowd, along with music, food, and many attending. For my genealogy need, a Mary McRae was in the book. She turned out to be my great-grandmother. It meant a lot to me. Now, we really do belong. The book sold well, and families enjoyed sharing memorable stories. Then in 1998, our schoolhouse became 100 years old. It was decided we should have a centennial celebration for the school. In their teaching days, if a teacher didn't live nearby, a local family would board that teacher because of the difficult winter travel. The committee <coughs> communicated with former teachers for the invitations on a July date and please come and join us. A flyer to all the locals and word of mouth brought an abundance of participation. The crowning joy came when 17 former teachers wow. came back to the event. Wow. They had a great camaraderie together with former students. Our parking area was full and we provided benches and chairs along with seats that others brought along. Lots of old time fiddling and step dancing from a flatbed wagon had toes tapping for this event in front of the school. Another wagon for invited guest speakers providing a platform to share stories for the crowd. A feed of mussels donated by the plant at the wharf along with strawberry shortcake from the locals went well. People mingled in and around the schoolhouse with the teachers sharing memories and laughs. It was a wonderful time for all. Many more joyful years would follow. With the next generation, will the next generation extend their PEI experience? I sure hope so. Wow. Yes. Mm. Well, Do people live there during the winter? Oh yeah, it's, it's yeah. A, kind of a wild place. Uh, yeah. And it's an island, and the wind never stops blowing, so yeah. they have huge drifts and everything else. But So people, the guys probably do fishing during the summer, or is yeah. that how they make oh, yeah. their... Yeah, it's one of the, one yeah. of the large industries, they're, they're lobster, stuff yeah. like that. Mussels, lobster, yeah. potatoes. Oh, stop. You know, lots of, oh, lots, yeah. of, lots <laughs> of niches. Oh, yeah. oh. Beautiful, beautiful yeah. vistas, anyway. But anyway, in, in my... Uh, Ancestors' days, those winters were all about survival. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, <laughs> wow. yeah they wow. didn't have yeah. much and they hunkered down, yeah. you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but they still had chores to do. They still had to get out to the barn, water the animals, yeah, all yeah. that business, you know. 
Can I share a story? Absolutely. It's a, a story about taking a train ride to New York, and I hadn't taken a train ride in probably 28 years or so. Mm -hmm. So it was like a brand new experience, and uh, some nice man helped me put my luggage up above and, and so on. And my stop to get off was second last to the end. And I was told that somebody in a hat would come by and tell me when my stop was coming up. He did. I had a great ride, pleasant. The only thing was I couldn't get my luggage down. By the time we got to this stop, there were very few people on the train. And I couldn't reach up high enough to get my luggage out. Some nice guy says, I'll help you. He did. But in the meantime, all of a sudden, there was a big bang and everything went forward. I said, what is that, an earthquake? He says, no, the train is starting. So oh. I missed my stop. Oh. <laughs> I called my sister, who was frantic, because by then I was late. Oh. And uh, anyway, I eventually got to her house, and she says to me, why don't you take a shower and get the road dust off and, and come out? And so she said, we did the bathroom over. The guest bathroom, you'll love it. Tell me how you like it, blood. I took a shower. I pulled the, uh, what do you call it? The, the, the handle. Green. Green. It came out in my hand. Oh. <laughs> and water's coming down, and I'm thinking, oh, I can't say it on the air. But anyway, I'm, I'm looking at... The handle, yeah. <laughs> and looking at a copper pipe coming out of the wall. Oh. I got dressed, went out, and I said, Jim, I'm in trouble. <laughs> I said, look at, he said, what did you do? What did <laughs> Next thing I know, I hear him complaining about a, a plumber and how do we get in touch with one. The story jumps now to the next day, and he says to me, did you shut off any lights last night. I had woken up during the night and found a bunch of lights on. So I went around shutting off the lights <laughs> and discovered that the back door was open, so I locked that. Oh. <laughs> Only to find out the next morning when my uh, uh, sister's husband is looking rather cross. I had closed and locked up the house real tight and the plumber couldn't get in. Oh. oh. So there's another day that the uh, showers, oh. they have three bathrooms, so it wasn't a problem, but oh. I was the problem. Mm -hmm. Wow. So we went, uh, <laughs> gonna have some tea and toast uh, before we set out. Uh, my sister set a nice table. Uh, I put some toast in the toaster went to spread some butter on it, only to find out it sounded like an axe fell on the uh, butter dish. <laughs> and I, all I could, I'm getting in trouble again, you know. <laughs> and I, I, I looked down, and there's my brother-in-law uh, uh, brother uh, looking down at me, and uh, I said, uh, I, I didn't know it was, would be so cold. So I tried it again, and it did it again. <laughs> and he looks at my sister and says, would you get something and help her? Oh. So I said, never mind, never mind, I'll just get some peanut butter. So mm -hmm. I, I walked oh. to their uh, closet where it's, 
I mean, I could sleep in it, and they have a few bucks. So this big closet with all sorts of dishes and pots and pans and all of the canned goods and things. So I'm looking for peanut butter. I can't find peanut butter anywhere. So I come out, and he, he says to me, what are you doing in there? And I said, well, I'm looking for the peanut butter. He says, it belongs in the refrigerator. Oh. <laughs> and I thought he was kidding. Uh, you know, get back at you or something <laughs> like that. I open up, sure enough, the, the uh, peanut butter is in the refrigerator. And I said to my sister, why do you keep your uh, peanut butter in the refrigerator? He says, that's what it says on the label. And I said, we used to do that to the dog, keep it in the uh, refrigerator and then throw him a lump and see how long it takes to chew it. You know, it was one of, you just don't do it. Anyone here keep their peanut butter in? No. I do. No. I keep you my do? almond butter in the refrigerator, yeah. Oh, almond butter, well. <laughs> <laughs> Tastes just like peanut butter. It's uh, an, an aristocrat. <laughs> <laughs> so everything was, that could go wrong went wrong. Oh, yeah. So that's... Did they ever invite you again? Well, wait, you haven't heard the half of it. Okay. The, uh, the brother-in-law says, come on, we'll go down to the restaurant. They frequent oh. this place for breakfast a lot. So uh, my, do uh, my sister says, I want to walk. Oh. No, it's three quarters of a mile. I really, I, I was in enough trouble, never mind, go walking. <laughs> so uh, we did, had a nice breakfast. And it's, I'm looking out, and it's starting to rain. My sister says, come on, we'll beat the rain. Well, it's already raining. Oh. I said, I don't want to walk in the rain. Well, you go with Jim, and I'll walk. Oh. She's one of these people got to walk three, three miles a day, you know. <laughs> so I uh, said to her, well, I'll, she says, go tell Jim you're going to ride home with him. Uh -oh. I didn't want to. Right. <laughs> everything that I had been doing. And uh, I go in the rest, uh, turn around and go into the back of the restaurant. He's gone. Oh, he left. So I said to Jose, I said, Jose, where's Jim? He says, he left. <laughs> and I said, when did he leave? Oh, about five minutes ago. Well, my <laughs> sister's gone and he's gone. So I'm standing there trying to figure out what am I going to do. And Jose comes by and says to me, can I help you? And I said, do you uh, know how I can get in touch with Jim and Justine? And uh, he says, no, but they're in here every day. So <laughs> I, I said, well, they went home without me. She went walking in the rain, and he drove home, yeah. leaving me at the restaurant. Here I am in, in downtown Yonkers, not knowing <laughs> how to get back to their house. <laughs> so Jose says to me, we'll call him. Well, my sister had said, leave your purse at home, oh. leave your telephone, your money, you don't need anything. Of course. So I didn't have their telephone number because you don't have to. You press a button and it automatically <laughs> dials. It's not in my head. So he says, you don't know their number? So anyway, <laughs> uh, they finally get in touch with him and his, my brother-in-law, now getting me out of trouble again. <laughs> So that was my trip to New York, and I oh, didn't want to go God. for a long time. But it really was a nice visit eventually. It's Did you funny to hear about it, again? it, but it must have been awful to <laughs> <laughs> so that was my trip. 
Shall I uh, go? Can you get something? Okay. Well, this is an excerpt from my novel, um, Murder is Bad Press. And we, if you've been following the, the story of Allison, she has gotten fired. She's a staff reporter with the um, daily newspaper, but she got a little too personal into her editor's life, personal life, so he fired her. So Allison doesn't have a job now, and and she's looking for her former roommate uh, who disappeared the first time she went out to cover a story. So anyway, 10 minutes later, I pulled up in front of the hospital. My mother was happy to see me. I have my girls with me today. How nice, she said, looking at Joan. When my sister was going to leave, I asked if I could speak to her outside. When I asked her for a loan, she again reminded me that I had to get a job. I know, I know I do, was my reply sheepishly. Joan gave me 50 bucks. I thanked her, went into my mother's room, told her I was walking Joan out and would be back. I had promised my waitress and her manager that I'd be back in 20 minutes. It had been over a half hour. Boy, would they be surprised to see me. They were. I apologized for taking longer than I had said, but I could tell they had written me off as a deadbeat and were genuinely pleased to see me. I thanked them again and again as I moved toward the front door. Once in my car, I knew I had to return to the hospital to visit more with my mother, which I did. I was going to go home, but as I got into the car, the scrap paper with the psychic's name and telephone number fell out on the seat. I called her. The friendly voice on the other line told me to come over right away. Things couldn't get any worse. My life was messed up. I needed a job first to bring in some income. But where could the tarot cards have the answer? The street was in an older section of Sandy Ridge, but not far away. I passed the beach on the way. Young people were playing volleyball. They appeared carefree and innocent. I wanted to trade places with them. When did things change for me? I thought back to my encounters with Shaw. I was sure Blair Nugent, or whatever her name was, was blackmailing Shaw. Why hadn't I shut up? No, I had to save Shaw, even if he didn't want to be saved. Oh, to do things different. The guy behind me honked me out of my trance. I took a left and saw Sadie's sign right in front of me. Sadie's psychic readings, tarot cards. Her telephone number was in bold letters. The street was a a line of former summer cottages converted into winter houses. The paint was peeling on most of them. Doors were falling off. Railings were broken. It gave me a creepy feeling to be around there. Should I go to this psychic healer? Did I believe in it? I didn't believe in too much anymore. I parked and got out of the car, locking my car, lest it not be there when I came out. Up ahead, a woman walked briskly across the street. 
something about her stature stature appeared familiar. She looked behind her like someone might be following her. It took me a minute to recognize her, but when I did, I shrank back. It was Lacey. What was she doing here in this part of town? The woman had a wide-brimmed hat on. I did several double takes, but yes, that was her. Maybe I was mistaken. We hadn't talked for a while. Every time I called her, I got her answering machine, and she never returned my call. It was strange because I thought we were getting to be good friends. Waiting until the woman got into the house, I walked up to the dwelling. Suppose she came out soon and found me. I wasn't doing anything wrong. Was she doing something wrong? Not Lacey. She was probably visiting some relative. She never talked about her family except her father, but maybe she had aunts and uncles in this part of town. She never mentioned any sisters or brothers, but that didn't mean she didn't have any. Lacey had gone into 8, 9, and 10 Prescott Street. Which one had she gone into and why? Mm. Have fun. <laughs> yeah. She set us up on another cliffhanger. Exactly. She left us literally there. That's right. Yep. Okay. Yes, Peter, speak. I'm going to return to the book, Down Rising Run, to a chapter entitled, Fine Feathered Friends. Mm. When you're headed home after any long trip, that last stretch of road can't be short enough. That's exactly how Innes felt at 4.30 in the morning. He was rolling down the longish stretch from Walking Cloud into Greater Grace, just a few more miles to go. He had all four windows rolled down to cope with the late summer humidity, and his radio turned up full to fend off the long day's exhaustion. Temperature outside of Rising Run Studios at Purdy's is still hovering at a 78 degrees, with the humidity not all that far behind. Another hot, sticky day up ahead. And by our official Western Union time clock, it's now 4.36. Say, mother, is your young child a fussy eater? Well, worry no more because your little one is sure to take to the time-tested, tasty texture of Granny's grainy oats. (laughs) Why, just inside of a flat minute, you can pour on hot milk and radio kept on. Innes wasn't paying much attention to the myriad gastrointestinal merits of Granny Oats. An empty stretch of road like this conjured a full appreciation of exactly what a new moon dark was meant to be. Nothing in front of his headlights but blacktop. Even the stars were obscured by low-hanging cloud cover. Innes was driving along into a blackness that demanded an act of faith beyond the short reach of his headlights. You can even add hot molasses and a short, sinful treat to Granny's Granny Oats and plenty healthful, too. There was a small blur of light way off in the distance. Moments later... Innes saw something whiz by in his lights that looked like a big snowflake. He had to be even more tired than he thought as several more flakes flitted by in short order. Then, all at once, a thick, fluffy snowfall filled his entire windshield. It was an arctic blizzard. His headlights found nothing but snow and more snow, those fluffy, puffy flakes that translate into heavy accumulation. But this is late July. Innes tapped his brakes to a crawl just as a tsunami of snow rolled over the hood. He plowed straight into what appeared to be a high, soft snowbank 
right in the middle of the road. Stopped, now half buried in snowbank, more of the snow was swirling all around him from everywhere. Innes hit the wipers to clear some of the accumulation, and big flakes were coming in the side windows. He looked down at his lap to discover he was already fairly buried in snow, right where he sat. But he didn't feel the least bit cold or damp at all. There was snow on the dashboard. There was snow on the passenger seat. But this snow was bone dry. There was snow in his hair, in his shirt pocket, even in his mouth. <laughs> this wasn't snow at all. Innes was sitting in feathers. His windshield wipers were swatting at white chicken feathers. Outside, the feather storm was still raging in front of his half-buried headlights while he sat and spat more feathers. <laughs> Innes set his parking brake and pushed the driver's door open slowly. The door carved its arc into the feathery drifts and he tentatively stepped out into the dark of night and white of storm. Wading around ankle to knee deep in chicken feathers, Innes could survey the complete effects of this most unlikely storm. His headlights were lighting up even more dancing feather flakes well beyond the massive feather bank that his car was buried in. His wipers were still aimlessly chasing after feathers drifting across the hood. There were other headlight beams, they were shining almost straight up from a deep gully along the left side of the road. They spotlighted still more faux snowflakes, softly drifting down from the deep black above. Innes cleared more feathers from his face, nostrils, and he yelled down toward the truck. Oh, you okay down there? A dazed voice drifted up. Um, uh, I think so. <laughs> A feathery silhouette stumbled up from the gully in front of the lights, and Innes reached to grab hold of an arm. Fender Dillman had been driving his large canvas-top 18-wheeler, loaded to the gills with chicken feathers for mattress stuffing, when he jackknifed into the gully, and now he looked like he had been tarred and feathered. <laughs> Both of them were still a bit phased and gawking at the feather storm all around. The feather fall was increasing, when Innes saw more headlights approaching from Greater Grace. They waited and waved frantically. Whoa, danger, chicken feathers, hold up. <laughs> <laughs> so Innes and Feather were both waving in darkness and the driver had no chance to see them from far off. He wasn't slowing down. They mostly waited at top speed as fast as they could to the other side of the feather bank when the driver plowed straight into the fluff. The feather storm was stirred up all over again in full force, just like someone shook a snow globe. With all the heat, humidity, wading around, falling down, both of them had worked up a fair sweat to become completely encrusted in sticky chicken feathers. <laughs> Innocent Fender could see the driver looking back at them as a truly horrific apparition framed in his headlights. Abominable snowmen. Now Innes got to witness just how flummoxed he must have looked while he was sitting in his car not five minutes earlier. The stunned driver could clearly make out the pair of fluffy, abominable feathermen lurching around in the storm and making their way toward him menacingly. He began screaming that high-pitched, girly streak of death. Without one lick of practice or intent, Innes and Fender were doing a rather creditable impression of a B-monster movie, Night of the Abominable Zombie Chicken Men. <laughs> The petrified driver screamed as though Innes and Fender were hell-bent to eat his brain. Oh. 
He hit reverse and floored it. A fresh flurry of feathers went trailing after retreating headlights and fading screams and hot, fluffy pursuit. Seconds later, his car was in the gully next to Fender's truck. They waded towards the headlights again, and the driver started screech screaming again, something incoherent about please not eating his brain. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, it's okay. It's all just chicken feathers. (laughs) See? Chicken feathers. The screaming subsided into spitting. (laughs) The more difficult part of extricating the driver was scrambling back out of the ditch filled with chicken feathers, and this involved a fair amount of slipping, sliding, flailing, falling, and now all three of them, Innes, Fender, and their newly befeathered and hyperventilating friend Dan, were all fully-fledged abominables head to toe. They started to clear off Innes' car and go for help when police lights and sirens approached from the distance. How did Constable know? Constable's another character in the book who sort of fancies himself a policeman. (laughs) Dan's girly screaming about the high likelihood of brain-eating activities in the area wasn't loud enough to reach back to civilization, but they do say that sound can carry in the night. (laughs) Fender mentioned that he had put out a little distress call over his truck radio just before Innes happened along, and that was enough to instantly rouse Constable directly to level four alert. Again, more frantic waving in an attempt to slow down the oncoming patrol car, but Constable was on urgent, official policing business, and of course, speed was absolutely of the essence, Mm -hmm. in the event, or hope, that valuable property, and yes, more hope, perhaps even lives, oh, please let it be lives, Mm -hmm. were at stake. Mm -hmm. After Constable plowed his homebrew patrol car into the feather bank, he sat for a bit and went through the now standard response stages of disorientation incredulity, rapt wonder, and finally sitting into just being flummoxed. (laughs) The feather storm was again raging in full force. The abominables all maintained a respectful distance, waiting for Constable (laughs) to catch up mentally, lest all the brain-eating business start up again. (laughs) Constable's searchlight swiveled across the snowy landscape, and the lamp flinched quite a bit when its beam fell on the feathered friends. Then... A tinny loudspeaker crackled. Who goes there? Identify. Friend or foe? The feathered friends all began emphatically nodding yes, shaking hands and backslapping each other, along with the occasional feathery thumbs up here and there to indicate that everyone here was quite friendly, affable, almost cuddly, in an oddly fluffy ornithological way. (laughs) No brain eaters here. Nothing but friends all around. The constable pushed his car door open wide, making the automotive equivalent of half a snow angel in the feathers. (laughs) Then Constable did his best to maintain an authoritative stride as he waddle-weighted his way toward everyone, set himself firmly into his most official police power stance amid a mound of swirling feathers and asked, Okay, what's going on here? Chicken feathers? And in the morning's large Tripex area news, it's been another quiet one. <laughs> that is unbelievable. That's got to be made into something yeah. Oh yes. visual. And everybody who heard the story was tickled. That's right. Oh. 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 
Oh, I could see he was trying to think of something. We, we, need, a, we need a rim shot over here. <laughs> there used to be a radio program, uh, and they would tell stories. A uh, 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 Ubagon, does that ring oh, a bell? Right, yeah, right, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like Wobegon. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, is that the same on uh, Saturday afternoons? Yeah. Well, this, this book is sort of written delightful. in the same genre. This book is written in the same genre. In fact, I, I'll read you the dedication. Okay. With humble apologies to Garrison. Just Garrison. a quick thank you kindly and a warning as well, I suppose, before the others discover your specious connection to my creatively impoverished efforts. They'll come at you, clubs and pit forks in hand, while pointing, either with the club or the free hand, and screaming, get him, it's his fault. He's that shimmering false god Tantalus who baits budding would-be authors with lofty dreams, aspirations, I tell you, leading innocence down a seemingly sure and shiny path toward a life littered with artistic failings. For example, run on sentences like this one. <laughs> and fatuous lexicographical pyrotechnics, just like this. <laughs> that garner critical scorn which leads to certain fiscal insolvency and abiding abject despair as they suffer in unpenned, unpublished silence to the last of their sorry waning days. Mm -hmm. Or is it just me? Your attorneys will argue a failure to demonstrate proximal cause, but a lynch mob doesn't care. <laughs> so run, hide, deny, deflect, at the least obfuscate. <laughs> Note, some lynch mob associates may opt to trade up to flaming, flaming torches for enhanced visual effect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You did send him a copy, I hope. No, I have not. Oh, you should. Oh. Well, I just, I is just finished still it. Is he Yeah. Oh, yeah. Garrison? He does a daily email. Oh, uh, does he? Yeah, he does. Because mm -hmm. I used to catch his uh, show on Saturday, right. about 3.30 or 4. Yeah, it was yeah. in the afternoon. Yeah. Steve, oh, did you have anything? So I think I mentioned before I've been reading The Double Life of Bob Dylan by Clinton Halen. And in that, I found out that Bob had done a version of the Cuckoo song. And turns out he's also not the only one. According to at least one article, there's 149 different versions that have been recorded of this classic, literally, mm -hmm. uh, folk song over the years. One of the more recent versions is an enchanting song I had seen a newer group, Rising Appalachia, do. And if you look for Rising Appalachia and Cuckoo, you'll enjoy the video on YouTube. So with that as a background, I've been wrapped up recently in preparations for the Franklin election season. Candidates, interviews, questions and answers, ultimately leading us all to the vote November 2nd, upon which the town government can or will move forward. How would it? Well, it all depends upon the vote in who wins. So that was the inspiration behind this. So imagine, if you will, a banjo and a folk guitar tune and a better voice than mine as I reworked the lyrics to the old folk song. The candidate from Franklin talks as he walks. She brings good tidings written in chalk. Ignoring the flowers, they make their voice clear the more we ignore, the more they'll play to fear. Oh, the cuckoo, she's a pretty bird. How I wish she was mine. She never drinks whiskey, she only drinks wine. The voters from Franklin want answers today. 
to the key questions. What will the candidates say? Stormwater or fee increase, mask or override, the voter's guide will help us decide. Oh, the cuckoo, she's a pretty bird. How I wish she was mine. She never drinks whiskey, she only drinks wine. Whether young or old, the time is near. Candidates to reveal what they hold dear. The voters can cast their vote as they may, and we'll see a new board after that day. Oh, the cuckoo, she's a pretty bird. How I wish she was mine. She never drinks whiskey, she only drinks wine. How each board will manifest remains to be seen. So let's keep the campaign real clean. Or we'll need liquid spirits to provide relief as we settle in for the ride. Oh, the cuckoo, she's a pretty bird. How I wish she was mine. She never drinks whiskey. She only drinks wine. Yeah, that my take on the cuckoo, and that'll be published under Sherlock's Foolish Music. Ah, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> so that'll be a good wrap for this session. Thank, Thank you all yeah. for participating, well, and for you listeners. <laughs> Join us next time for another scintillating, feather-filled session. Who knows? <laughs> and our writers today are... Steve Sherlock here. Hi, Faith Flaherty. Hi, Alice Judge. I'm Peter J. Linda Doonan. Al Larkin. Kathy Salzberg. Bill Oily. Thanks for being with us here on Senior Story Hour. Until the next time, I'm Peter J. Remember, be they laced with gravity, levity, wisdom, or whimsy, the meaning, experiences of life become a little larger when you share them, when you take a moment to commit pen to paper and just write. This is FPR, Franklin Public Radio.